This is episode 409 with Paul Austin. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide and Comparisonitis. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Guess what, my beautiful friend? My fourth book, Comparisonitis, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy is out right now. Number one, New York Times bestselling author and social media sensation Jay Shetty said, never before has a book been more needed. Future generations will thank Melissa for shining a spotlight on comparisonitis. And multiple New York Times bestselling author Gabby Bernstein said, since Melissa refers to people who have recovered from comparisonitis as unicorns, I suppose that makes this a sort of unicorn training manual. I'm so grateful that such a manual has arrived. It's been infinitely helpful to me. Head to comparisonitis.com or Amazon to get your copy today. Welcome back to the show. I'm your guest host, Nick Broadhurst, Melissa Ambrosini's husband. As you know, Melissa is currently on maternity leave, so I'm jumping in to dive into some topics which may not have been spoken about before on this podcast, and today is one of those. We are going to be diving into the world of psychedelics. Now, this is something which I personally don't know a huge amount of. I have spoken of my personal experience with plant medicine on a previous episode and it is a really really fascinating emerging space it's hard to ignore the amount of information coming out around microdosing how this is enhancing entrepreneurs and innovators in silicon valley and of course ayahuasca we hear about ayahuasca all the time so what is it what are psychedelics what is the history of psychedelics how they used today how were they used back in the past this is what we're going to be diving into today And I would say my favorite part of this conversation definitely revolves around the history of psychedelics. Some of the things we speak about in this episode, apart from the history of psychedelics, is the modern application of psychedelics, the benefits of the anti-inflammatory components. We talk about plasticity of the brain, how it's opening up our creativity, connecting us to more feelings of love, interconnectedness, oneness. We also dive into things we can do today that can give us a similar experience to psychedelics without having to actually consume or use psychedelics. It's a really, really interesting conversation and I really encourage you to listen all the way through. We have so many nuggets of gold through this episode and I do want to have a bit of a disclaimer up front. This episode is not meant for medical advice. Okay. Before taking on any changes to your health routine, trying anything new at all, please consult a qualified practitioner. And I also want to disclaim that what we're talking about is actually illegal in a lot of countries. So be very mindful of where you are located and your local laws in relation to the use of psychedelics. Paul F. Austin is an entrepreneur, public speaker, and educator. He has founded two companies in the emerging psychedelic space, Third Wave and Synthesis. Now, within Third Wave, Paul leads his team in building an educational platform to ensure psychedelic substances become responsibly integrated into our cultural framework. 
And as you'll learn through this episode, psychedelic substances have been an integral part of the evolution of humanity. Super fascinating. Currently, Third Wave offers long-form psychedelic guides, online microdosing programs, and an industry-best network of clinics and retreat providers around the world. Paul has been featured in the BBC, Forbes, Rolling Stone, and he sees psychedelic use as a skill. It's a skill that becomes more refined as we explore the many nuances of these awe-inspiring medicines and molecules. Learning how to hone this skill, Paul believes, will be crucial in the story of humanity's evolution. So without further ado, guys, let's dive into this super fascinating topic with Paul F. Austin. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so good to be here. So before we dive into this really incredible topic of psychedelics, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Pulled pork tacos, breakfast tacos with chives and tomatoes and a little bit of cheese. I had done like a pork shoulder in a slow cooker and we just had some leftovers. So we made those into, into breakfast tacos. They're super good. Wow. Beautiful. <laughs> so good. I'm really excited for this conversation because this is a topic I'm super fascinated in, as is Melissa. Admittedly, I don't know a huge amount about psychedelics, and I've spoken before on the show about my own personal experience with plant medicine having big impacts on my life at a certain stage of my life. But take us back, because this may not have been the work you've always done. You've obviously had a path to get to where you are now. How did you end up where you are now with Third Wave and all the work you're doing with psychedelics? So the origin story starts in uh, the Midwest, in the United States, which is a pretty traditional area of the States. I grew up with a couple of parents that were relatively religious, church every Sunday, very clear rules around good and bad, and kind of, you know, morality and drugs were considered bad and sex and violent video games and, you know, these sorts of things. So I grew up in a relatively sheltered, but very loving home and environment. And when I was 16, smoked cannabis for the first time and sort of thought, oh, this is an interesting experience and had that experience a few other times when I was 16, 17. And then that same friend at the age of 19, who had introduced me to cannabis, had found some mushrooms and was like, let's have an experience with these. So it was a winter break. We were in a house with a third friend, tried some mushrooms. It was interesting. It was nostalgic. It wasn't necessarily like an optimal set and setting. It was a fairly small amount, maybe a gram and a half to two grams, which is enough to have an experience but not be in the throes of it. And then about five months later, I had a friend who introduced me to LSD. And we had this beautiful experience with it outdoors. Michigan is has these beautiful dunes on the lake, early May day, sunny weather. We went out, we were in the woods at the beach and just had a really profound, interesting experience. And so I started then to get pretty into LSD and probably between the ages of 19 and 21, did LSD and psilocybin mushrooms maybe 15 to 20 times, right? So soon after I tried LSD for the first time in Michigan, I actually went on a um, school trip to Tanzania because I was studying biology at the time and we were going on safari. And I just thought, hey, how cool would it be to bring some LSD to Tanzania and take it while on safari in this sort of wild outdoor canvas that we have available to us. And so from that experience and many of the other experiences, what you often get plugged into is this sense of seeing things as interconnected, right? Like that that's often the word that comes back is, is you you recognize how interdependent you are on the environment, on community, on family, on, on these other things. And so 
after I had these experiences, the way that I viewed the world and what I wanted to create, so to say, with my existence, because one thing that, that psychedelics do, which we can go more into, is they help people to sort of wake up to total freedom, which also requires total responsibility. So through these profound experiences, we often come to recognize that we have the capacity to create what it is and whatever it is that we wish to create. And so with that perspective, that viewpoint, I simply ask the question, well, you know, I'm 19, I'm 20, I'm just about to graduate from undergrad. What is it that I want to create and how do I start setting that path now? So when I was 21, I moved to Turkey. I had traveled throughout college. I'd gone to Ireland. I'd gone to Tanzania for a month. I studied abroad in Vienna for six weeks. And so I started to become more and more interested in traveling and with the growing emergence of remote work at that point in time, how those two come together. So I moved to Turkey. I taught English there while teaching English, basically just read a lot of books, started my own blog, kind of got a sense of how do you build an online platform. And then a couple of years later, moved to Thailand and lived in Chiang Mai, where I built my first online business, which was essentially taking the skills that have been cultivated while teaching English in Turkey, the standardized test that students would have to take to get their MBA at Harvard. So it was a lot of coaching. And I asked, now, how do I build a platform around that and hire other coaches and other teachers to build and grow that, develop an online course, et cetera, et cetera. And so I started to work on that. That was started in August 2014, so about seven years ago now. And that was sort of the first taste of like true freedom from my perspective, because all of a sudden in building that business, I could travel and live wherever I wanted. So I lived in Thailand, I lived in Budapest, I lived in Lisbon, I lived in Oaxaca, and I had no one to answer to. You know, There was no boss, there was no homework. It was purely driven by my own imagination, so to say, by my own creativity. And because I had placed myself in that position, then in 2015... I started to hear more about psychedelics through a couple well-known podcasts. And it started to read a few articles and just sort of like remembered back to those early experiences and thought, hey, this is really starting to come back around again. There looks like there's something here, right? Like it, it felt like with a lot of the clinical research that was starting to be published, with cannabis becoming legal in more and more states, and then with big name podcasters starting to talk publicly about psychedelics, it felt like there was this sort of emerging wave of, of interest that would be crucial for mental health, for performance, for wellness, for you know ecological awareness, if you will, right? It, it, it seemed to be coming in at an interesting time. And so in 2015, as a hobby, I thought, how cool would it be to start a platform to educate people about responsible psychedelic use? So in other words, as this becomes more prominent, how do we encourage people to sort of become literate you know, and learn about, well, these are the pros and these are the cons. These are the benefits and these are the risks. And that was the initial impetus behind Third Wave. And within that, I also was mindful of what had happened in the second wave, which I'm excited to get into and get deeper into. But with the counterculture in the 60s, right, the, the sort of first time that we as a modern Western culture have been exposed to these in, in a really widespread way, what went wrong and what I sort of landed on was the encouragement of it on a cultural basis, right? Because there were thousands of clinical papers published in the 50s and 60s. So there was a lot of rigorous science that was done around it. But once it sort of hopped outside the walls of clinics and institutions, the predominant way that it was spoken about publicly was in very high doses of LSD, right? Like turn on, tune in, drop out. That was Timothy Leary's phrase. And so what I assumed was, well, if we focus, instead of high doses of LSD, talk publicly about microdosing, Right, taking these small, susceptible amounts of LSD or psilocybin 
and noticing what are the tangible benefits, right? So unlike the second wave, which culturally was sort of presenting themselves as the counterculture, as the other, right? What would it require instead to integrate these into what would become essentially mainstream or more predominant or more widely used and actually use sort of the insights and perspectives that we come to from psychedelics to reimagine things at a systemic level, right? So business or energy use or whatever else. And how can that inform what I would say the truth of interconnectedness? How could that form these new cultural systems that we're starting to create and develop? So I'll stop there. That's sort of the origin story. And then it's grown and developed, I would say, in the last six years because of all the momentum that we've now seen with psychedelic substances. So let's let's talk about interconnectedness because I want to go back, not just to the 50s or 60s, but let's go back 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 years. And let's go back into the origin of a lot of these things in indigenous cultures. Can you speak to us about that? Because we all are pretty familiar with ayahuasca these days and some of the different psychedelics that come from different plants, frogs, all sorts of different sources. Take us back. Where did this all come from? Even nicotine, right? Nicotine, smoking, the tobacco plant. So tell us about the origins of the first wave. So I will do my best which to is condense times. 10,000 years of history <laughs> yeah. into a soundbite. So, so there's this phenomenal author who died 20 years ago. His name is Terence McKenna. Right? And Terence McKenna was like the, the Irish bard of the psychedelic movement in the 1980s. And we give all these phenomenal talks at Esalen Institute. And he published really three main books. The first one was called Archaic Revival, which was a collection of his talks and essays for many years. The second one was called Food of the Gods. And the third one was called True Hallucinations. There may have been a couple others, but those are his three main ones. And in the book, Food of the Gods, Terrence McKenna talks about how the use of psilocybin mushrooms by, let's say, our grassland-faring ancestors helped with the sort of first evolution of consciousness when the intellectual capacity of Homo sapiens, if you will, really started to flourish and develop. And that the use of psilocybin was concurrent with the development of language and the development of early religion, right? So we see these... Just to stop you quickly, because some people may not know what psilocybin is. So we might throw some words around, but psilocybin coming from mushrooms, yeah? The magic mushroom, right? The psilocybin mushroom, psilocybe cubensis would be the, the proper name oftentimes, right? And so his hypothesis was that as we were going across the savanna grasslands that Psilocybe cubensis, which grow everywhere in the world, grow out of cow dung. And so in those early days, we would have been, you know, going across and picking them up and eating them and trying them. And that that didn't just happen in Africa, but there were also other traditions around the world that, that picked up on this. Now, one of those was the ancient Greeks, right? And so uh, there's this fantastic book that was published about a year ago now, a little less than a year ago, called The Immortality Key by an author, uh, Brian Muirescu. And in that book, Brian tracks the use of psychoactive uh, medicines from Gobekli Tepe, which is like the cradle of civilization in Turkey, through to the Eleusinian Mysteries, which was uh, an event that occurred every four years outside of Athens, a day's walk, where Plato and Aristotle and the creme de la creme of you know the Greek culture and civilization would have this experience. And then he traces it through to early Christianity and how it was actually in the sacrament that the early Christians consumed before the Romans took it out when they made Christianity the official religion empire in 307 AD. And so a couple interesting things to pick up on that is what Brian talks about is how these substances, these plant medicines were infused into wine and beer as sort of a medium to consume it. 
and that at least in ancient Greece, that they made it out of something called ergot. And ergot is a fungus that grows on rye bread, and that when processed in a certain way can lead to a psychedelic experience. And so this beverage, kaikion, mm. which was drank in Eleusis at these Eleusinian mysteries, it was usually done like once in a person's life where they would go have this experience. And then in underground ceremonies, it would be consumed more often. But the greater mysteries were like, I mean, it was like the thing. And what the Greeks often said about it is that life would not be worth living without this experience. You know, so without this kaikian, without the Eleusinian mysteries, life would not be worth living. Because they don't have the, the exposure to the interconnectedness, the oneness, they, don't, they may not ever have that feeling because they're living in a darker time, I imagine. Precisely. Right. So there's, a, there's an interesting through line, which we'll come back to in terms of then what happened in the second wave, because LSD is also made from ergot, hmm. the same fungus that was in Kaikion, which informed basically the early fundamental philosophy of Plato. And, and as we know, all of Western philosophy is a footnote to Plato. So there's a really interesting tie in there between the psychedelic experience and sort of the, the core of Western philosophy. Now, outside of that, ayahuasca, which we know from the Amazon, some people would say that it's been used for 300 years. Some people would say that it's been used for 500 years. Some people would say that it's been used for a thousand years, right? So there's still, I would say, disagreement about how long this has been used, but we know that it's been used since in the last five, six, seven hundred years. And the ayahuasca is an interesting combination of a leaf and a vine. And one of them, I believe the leaf... No, 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 it's the vine. The vine has DMT and the leaf has the MAOI. And so the Shipibo people were sort of the holders of the ayahuasca. They will talk about how they learned this sort of recipe through the forest. In other words, it just intuitively came to them. And so it is like a key practice that they continue to come back to today. And we, and we now know about ayahuasca and ayahuasca ceremonies and underground ayahuasca ceremonies and retreats that are popping up. And so there's a deep history there. And then the other one that I point to is the use of soma in ancient India. And soma is talked about in the, the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads as this sort of magical brute. And so historians, when they're looking back and, and understanding Soma, it looks as if it's made again from psilocybin mushrooms, and that Soma was a brew that was created for similar purpose and reason as how it was used in, in ancient Greece. So we have that sort of, you know, globally, right? We have ayahuasca in the Amazon, we have Soma in ancient India, we have Kaikian in ancient Greece. Some would also say that Moses in the Bible, the burning bush, that that was Syrian rue, which is a uh, psychoactive substance that also has a DMT component. The Mazatec and the Mayans use psilocybin mushrooms in their ceremonies, so there's an indigenous use of psilocybin mushrooms in Mexico. So this is, this is global, this is all over the place, this is widespread. But I think what's much more relevant to this audience is the way that it informed early Christianity, because now Christianity has really created so much of the structure in which we live as a culture and society. For better or worse, it's just how it's been for many of us who live in Western countries. So that influence of plant medicine in early Christianity, where they essentially would host underground ceremonies and underground circles, they would again use a beverage, you know, there's, there's parallels between Dionysus, which was the ancient Greek god at these Eleusinian mysteries, and Jesus, and the role that both of those played in their respective mythologies. And so in 307 AD then, like I said, the Roman Empire made Christianity the official religion. They cut out 
a lot of that. They formalized it. They made an orthodoxy. And then really for probably 1,700 years, it was kept largely underground. And even when people from the West went during the Renaissance and Enlightenment to colonize you know, Mexico and to colonize the Americas, one of the key things that they did was to root out all indigenous psychedelic use because they saw it as associated with the devil. Now, this has an interesting relationship to these other drugs like nicotine that you mentioned, because the drugs that became very normative during that time period, right, colonialism and industrialization of Western culture, those drugs were tobacco, caffeine, and alcohol, right? So those are the three normative drugs, which are why those are predominantly the three core drugs that are legal everywhere still. I mean, there are exceptions, but those are the three core drugs that are, mm. that are legal. Interesting. And that's because they were really important in terms of the transatlantic trade, mm. right? In terms of revenue in early colonialism, those were great cash crops. And because they were great cash crops, they had a huge market to consume it. So we smoke tobacco in the morning, we drink coffee in the morning because it's stimulating, and we drink alcohol at night because it's a depressant. It helps us with energy, it helps us come down, right? And that was needed in an industrial period because people were working nine to five jobs, right? So they need to get up every time at a certain morning and they would need to get, you know, they would have their, their evening pub beer to wind down and they would repeat and repeat and repeat. And so any drugs that were outside of that were considered non-normative and were kept illegal until the 1960s, right? or even before that, maybe 1938, right? Albert Hoffman, who's a Swiss chemist, invents LSD. He's trying to find a cure for, not a cure, but something to help women with childbirth, right? So he was doing experiment after experiment after experiment, landed on LSD 25, tried it out on like a rat or something. There really wasn't much of an effect, put it on the shelf. Five years later, sort of has this intuition that he should come back to it. It's 1943 by this point in time. He pulls it back off the shelf, tries it, has the world's first ever LSD experience, and then really feels a calling to try to get this out there. So he starts to talk to other chemists about it. He starts to talk to clinicians, to hospitals about it, right? And so LSD starts to make its way into psychiatric institutions to help with addressing mental health issues. And this is throughout the 50s. There's probably over a thousand clinical papers that were published about the efficacy of LSD. It was seen as a miracle drug of the time for good reason. You know, you had famous Hollywood actors like Cary Grant, who were well known for talking about their LSD experiences and how helpful it was at dealing with alcoholism. You had Bill Wilson, who was the founder of AA Alcoholics Anonymous, who wanted to include LSD in the 12-step plan, but it was too controversial at the time. And then concurrent to that, there was a guy named Gordon Wasson, who was a VP at Chase Morgan. And Gordon was married to a Russian woman who was a mycologist, a mycophile. And they thought, how cool would it be to go down to Oaxaca and, and try to find this thing called the magic mushroom? Because they had heard about it through Albert Hoffman. Albert Hoffman and Gordon Wasson have been communicating about LSD. So Gordon Wasson goes down there, has this magic mushroom experience with Maria Sabina, who's a querendera in Oaxaca, comes back and writes about it on the front page of Life magazine. This is 1957. Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, who are two professors at Harvard, read about it also with a man named Andrew Weil who's still alive today and is working in integrative medicine. Andrew Weil was a graduate student at the time. And those three start doing experiments with LSD. And then Timothy and Richard start to sort of, you know, do a few more experiments and break the rules a little bit and go down to Mexico and do psilocybin and start evangelizing about it. And eventually Harvard fires them and the counterculture really starts to kick off. And so it hopped then from, we're using this in hospitals, we're using this in psychiatric institutions, to, well, this is now widely available because at that time, LSD was legal. So it could be imported in the United States and anyone and everyone could pretty much have access to it. 
And then things started to get really out of control, right? Like just there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who were using LSD in really high doses. It was associated with the countercultural movement of the 1960s with the Vietnam War, right? With protests against the Vietnam War. It was also associated with the Merry Pranksters and Ken Kesey and the Grateful Dead and that whole movement. So there's a lot of chaos in that. And the Nixon administration at the time knew that they couldn't make being a hippie illegal or they couldn't make protesting against the war illegal because of our civil rights, but they could make a certain drug illegal. And so that's when the war on drugs started was in 1971. And because of the United States hegemony on a global basis, they essentially required every single country to sign a similar law as they did in the United Nations in 1971 if these countries wanted to still have relationships with the United States. So, of course, every country signed it because of the power that the United States had at that time. And so in 1971, pretty much all psychedelic research stopped. It all went underground. And until 2006, when Johns Hopkins published the first clinical paper on psilocybin, there were a couple things that popped up here and there, right? The Grateful Dead did a phenomenal job of sort of carrying that psychedelic spirit throughout culture, even in the, the, the dark ages, so to say. Terrence McKenna, who I mentioned earlier, was a well-known public speaker who would talk about these things, but it was really, really underground and really, really illegal. And then just because of, I mean, there's many reasons, but in large part because of what happened in the 60s with LSD, with the computer revolution. So there's a really interesting tie-in between LSD use and the development of digital technology. Uh, for example, the guy who invented the computer mouse and invented the computer user interface was a guy named Douglas Engelbart, who was well-known for using LSD to help with innovation and creativity. This guy named Stuart Brand, who uh, invented something called the Whole Earth Catalog. He did LSD in 1962 with James Fadiman. And soon after that experience, petitioned the federal government to release the first ever photograph of the United States, or not of the United States, of the world in itself. Petition them, petition them, petition them. And then once he got that approved, that's when Earth Day started. So LSD was quite influential then in helping us with the ecological movement. And then, of course, Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, he pointed to the whole Earth catalog, which is what Stuart Brand had invented, as basically the Bible of the tech scene. And Steve Jobs was well known for talking about how influential LSD was in his own life and perspective, et cetera, et cetera. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is because there's a tie-in then with the, the current reemergence of psychedelic substances, right? So as I spoke about earlier, during the industrial period, the normative drugs were caffeine, tobacco, and alcohol because of the experience and the, they helped people with focus and then relaxing. And what happened in the 60s is all of a sudden our consciousness was dosed in this new substance, LSD, as well as psilocybin mushrooms, that had a totally different way of being compared to these normative drugs. And so it helped us to sort of step out of this industrial period, which there's hierarchy, there's centralization, there's mass production, there's a lot of other things that come with industrialization and started helped us to basically kick off what people now call the information age. Right, the age of decentralization, the age of, of mycelial networks, if you will. Right, so we look at cryptocurrency, we look at blockchain, we look at psychedelic use, we look at you know the Internet of Things, we look at metaverse and augmented reality. Right, so what's this emergent way of being that brings us beyond industrialization? And then what are the substances we're using to help catalyze the creation of that new system, new culture, new society? And so it's no coincidence that now that we're sort of in the death throes of industrialization, which is concurrent with the development of nation states, right? 
which is why we're seeing a huge state of decadence in, in governments and even government responses to COVID. They just, it's not adaptable enough. It's not responsive enough. It's not on the ground enough. It's still too removed, too distant. And so what I'm really interested then in is how can psychedelics help us with creating these new systems, if you will, to address a lot of the existential issues that we're faced with? Because it's clear that we can't address them from an industrial perspective. And what psychedelics do is they help us, again, to see things from this interconnected, interdependent perspective. And so with that influence, with that understanding, what new creations, what new innovations, what new things are brought into being that help us become a more resilient, adaptable, sort of compassionate species, if you will. Mm. Well, there's a fair bit there to unpack. So <laughs> let's talk about some of those applications because, I mean, blockchain, let's talk about blockchain. I recently did an episode on this show about crypto and it's something I'm extremely passionate about. My son is very passionate about it. He's currently learning all the different pro- uh, languages for programming and building all sorts of stuff. Satoshi Nakamoto, the supposed creator of the original blockchain white paper and hence Bitcoin. We don't know if he's a person or a group of people or Elon whatever, Musk. but he's Elon yeah, Musk. everything's Elon Musk. <laughs> everything, <laughs> he's responsible for everything. <clears throat> but um, I wonder whether this sort of, because microdosing has around that time actually, was starting to come in. And I wonder whether this sort of re-emergence has been responsible for what I believe is probably the greatest advancement in technology, which is blockchain. Well, and there's a fascinating intersection there between, you know, like a lot of people who are interested in crypto and a lot of people who are, who are interested in psychedelics. I interviewed someone a couple months ago for my podcast, and there seems to be a lot of affinity for one another. In fact, one of the biggest sort of crypto investors named Mike Novogratz, mm-hmm. who has Galaxy Investments and is a really public figure in crypto, he's also invested tens of millions of dollars into these emerging psychedelic companies. Right. Peter Thiel, who's another one. I don't know Peter. I, I know Peter's into crypto, but it's not like it's newish for him. thing thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he's also been heavily invested into psychedelics. Christian Angermeyer is another one. So there's definitely an affinity and an intersection there. And what I spoke about with this guest who I had in the podcast was the parallels between mycelial networks and these sort of blockchain or cryptocurrency networks. So mycelial right? and so the, coming from mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a mycelial network. So we have the mushrooms that we pick are the fruiting spores, mm-hmm. and underground are the sort of networks of communication that tie all those that whole thing together. That's actually where the majority of the organism is. It's it's the mycelial network underground, and then the the mushrooms are just what are the the fruiting spores, the fruiting bodies. And so the way that those networks are set up are there's there's an amazing ability to, for example, if there's one part of the network that gets attacked then nutrients are sent from all of the parts of the network to help it heal as fast as possible. There's an automatic adaptive response to it. It's not like the mushrooms are going, well, first this has to go through a government program and then it's just, it's natural, it's emergent, it's adaptive, right? And I think essentially, you know, the way that I think about is often in fractals, right? So, so much of what happens to us on an individual level as a self, individual self, so to say, that shift, that transformation is then reflected in the external systems that we build. It's reflected in the communities that we create. It's reflected in the businesses that we develop. So if psychedelics then are teaching us about this mycelial way of being, right, the sort of truth of interconnectedness, then how are we taking that wisdom and that knowledge and actually directly applying it to the world around us with the businesses that we create, with the way that we take care of ourselves? And what's core to me as a value is 
I love this concept of anti-fragility or adaptability, which says basically that a resilient system is simply, it won't break if you disrupt it, but an anti-fragile system grows from the disruption, right? So if there's a, let's say you run a business and there's a pandemic, how do you respond to that? How does your organism actually get stronger and more capable through that adaptive process? And that's what we need right now, because as weather and climate and viruses and all these sorts of things that are seeming to lead to this like apocalyptic ending, like there's definitely an apocalyptic fear that is emerging and arising. So as we deal with these really intense extreme situations, what are systems that we're creating that actually get stronger and stronger because of this occurring? And that's how we need to think if we're going to adapt in a way that allows us to thrive, you know, next century and the century beyond and the century beyond as a human species. I have a question for you about mycelium. Yeah. It's something which I've spoken about this with some of my friends and (laughs) I'm not sure of the answer yet, but do you think that the mycelium network, let's take a little step backwards actually, because I I went recently on a local culinary mushroom foraging tour. So we're just looking for culinary mushrooms, I found some little Japanese sort of shiro ones, and there's a native one here in Australia, which a lot of Australians would have seen, which grows off fallen trees. It looks like a flat orange disc, and the indigenous populations here would use that with their babies, teething babies, any sort of mouth ulcers. It's very leathery and chewy. So we're learning about these mushrooms locally, and we were talking about the because in Queensland where I live. A lot of the mushrooms here are much more dangerous than if you go down south just because of the climate. So you got to be very careful what you pick. And anyone listening, please do not go and just forage random mushrooms and pick them because you could kill yourself, right? Very high chance you could do some serious damage. So you've got to know what you're doing. And I'm curious because uh, two questions, actually. First question is, do you think the intelligence of the mycelium network is using us for their own benefit or are we using them for our benefit? Well, it's symbiosis, right? One would be parasitic. If, we were, if one was using the other, then that would be a parasitic relationship. But I mean, they are our oldest ancestor. Some people would say that mushrooms came over as basically an alien species on a meteorite or an asteroid. And well, let's, let's look at that for a second, because if you go back to when the Earth would have been just a big red hot lump of dirt or rock and really very little life, I think the first... I think the first biological signs on Earth were Archaea. Is that right? Bacteria? I think it was Archaea. Yeah. Something like that. But closely followed after that was mycelium. Fungi. And fungi. And so with fungi, what they did is they broke down, essentially broke down the rock. They used the rock and they broke it down, extracted the minerals for themselves to grow. And hence over millions, if not billions of years, did this breaking down a rock process to create soil, essentially, right? So... We wouldn't be here without fungi, full stop, right? So we owe a lot to fungi. So part of me thinks that it's symbiotic, but also if you look at the way that they've spread, when you bring a a plant species from Europe to Australia, let's say pine trees or something like that, then you're bringing in the spores of the specific fungi. I just wonder whether the fungi is just having the last laugh at us because we're just spreading it around the world and it's everywhere, right? As you said, it's interconnected. And if you look at the way that it works in the human body, if you look at medicinal mushrooms, being immunoregulators. So they regulate the immune system in the sense that, as you said, when something's broken, it knows where to send nutrients to, et cetera, et cetera. And that's if you're having a look at, say, cordyceps, lion's mane, uh, reishi, 
chaga, all these sorts of mushrooms, they're all immunoregulators, uh, which I find really interesting because it sort of translates to the way they operate in nature. That was my first question. My second question was in relation to how humans developed the knowledge of which ones to eat. I just found, I thought this was interesting because it's pretty much, if you think about it, the people who tried the ones that killed them never got to tell anyone about it because they died. This is an interesting process, right? How do we just, because there's how many types of mushrooms? There's hundreds of different types of magic mushrooms, right? Yeah, there's 205 or something like that, different types of magic mushrooms. How on earth did we figure out which ones to eat? Was it fully intuitive? Did it, If you go back to, obviously, the Amazon and talking about ayahuasca, as you said, that was supposedly intuited, communicated by the forest themselves. What are your thoughts on that? I find that really interesting because it's a it's a long process. Yeah, it's got to be trial and error. I mean, yeah. they, and unfortunately, they didn't just have replacement livers that they could chip out in case you ate the wrong one. And there's an element of oral tradition then passing that down. So once that assessment is made, how do you continue to weave that into cultural norms? I mean, I think this is why mushrooms even in the United States and other like the UK and Australia, right? We don't really have a great relationship with the mushroom, whether it's psilocybin or not. We've been very like skeptical with mushrooms. And my hypothesis with that is because mushrooms represent death, a really clear right. sort of about death. And what's interesting culturally is the Russians are very familiar with mushrooms. They use a lot of mushrooms. And the Russians are also very familiar with death. They have, a, I think, a, a maybe more at peace relationship with it. And so how that was intuited early, like the first people, I mean, I would imagine it would have to be trial and error. I think the the way that cultural norms developed around mushrooms is then even more fascinating because it speaks to other parts of that that culture. And I think it's interesting now that mushrooms are really like, even with things like Four Sigmatic or, you know, these other sort of mushroom lattes or whatever it is, mushrooms are now like starting to be in everything. It's like I can't get away from from mushrooms, which is good because they're super healthy. They help with wellness, et cetera, et cetera. And even something like ayahuasca, you know, they the, they would say with ayahuasca that the plants spoke to them, that they were so in tune with the wisdom of what they were surrounded by that they just knew which vine, which leaf to cut and to pick and to put together. It's one of those weird, unexplainable things, you know, and and, and we can guess, we can hypothesize, but it's it's a bit of a mystery, which I think is fun sometimes to 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 not know like how how did we discover some of these like even even something like Kaikion, for example, which I spoke about earlier, right? The the beverage, the brew that air got, they still haven't been able to recreate that in today. Like they knew what was in it. They have a sense of what was psychoactive. They have a sense, you know, there were poems written about the experience, but there have been a lot of people who have tried to recreate that beverage and just, they cannot figure it out. So it's almost like once it goes extinct, something like that, maybe it just doesn't ever come back. If we look at some of the things or some of the ways that psychedelics have infiltrated Western society, one of the most iconic figures in Western culture would be Santa. Santa Claus. And you probably know where I'm going with this. Amanita Muscaria. Uh, you would know this story better than I do, but I, I found this really fascinating when I first heard about Siberian shaman, the story of the mushrooms. I just think this is such a cool story. Can you take us through the origins of Santa Claus? It's so fascinating. So I'm somewhat familiar with this. We can probably include a couple links in the show notes where people want to get the full full story. But essentially, 
the word shaman is Siberian, right? So a shaman is actually strict. They come from Siberia. So what they actually call people who work at ayahuasca are cuerenderos, which is a Spanish word for healer. So shaman has become kind of a cool in vogue term, but it specifically refers to those who are trained in Siberia in those, in those ways of being. And one of the things that shamans supposedly did was when they found something like Amunita muscaria, they noticed that the reindeers would be quite interested in it. And so somehow, I don't know how, but somehow they thought, okay, if we really want to have an experience from this, let's drink the urine of the reindeer. Because when the Amanitu muscaria is sort of digested by the reindeer system, what it urinates is a broken down form of one of the ingredients in Amanitu muscaria, which makes it more psychoactive. So Amanitu muscaria is the red mushroom with the white dots, correct? Correct. The red mushroom with the white dots. And so I think naturally from that then emerge this story of a Santa Claus, right? Probably a shamanistic story. And there are similar stories in other mythologies, but essentially this, this man who flew across the sky in the reindeer. Now, I don't, I don't know how that leads to then him going down chimneys. And I think there's other things within that, like going down chimneys and presents and gifting and maybe the North Pole and other things. But the core of it, as it relates to Dominique Muscaria, is one, be very careful of ever trying that because it's actually, if you don't, prepare it properly. If you were just to eat an Amanita, like you would a Psilocybe cubensis, the one with psilocybin in it, it's a very uncomfortable experience and you're not necessarily having the typical classic psychedelic experience. It's really uncomfortable. There is significant nausea. It is not pleasant. So that's where the hypothesis comes from of, well, if you drink the urine of reindeers that ate it, it would be more psychedelic and more psychoactive, et cetera, et cetera. I've never done it. Well, certainly I've never drank the urine. I've 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 also never I've never eaten the mushroom itself. But again, it's one of those kind of it's one of those cool stories where it people will question the legitimacy of it. Like I'll see things pop up, be like, actually it's not about but it's like a fun story to tell and explore and you know, learn about. Well, as you know, mushrooms are often dried out, right? So what what I'd heard about that story was that first of all, that specific mushroom grows underneath pine tree. Mm -hmm. So what does the Christmas tree represent? What are the presents at the bottom of a Christmas tree? That's the first thing that I've learned about is that the the modern representation of the Christmas tree in the presents actually is a pine tree with mushrooms growing below it. That's hence the red and white colors. And that the the shaman would essentially at that time, they would be living in almost yurt style homes and they'd have a smokestack at the top, like a circle at the top. And the shaman, because it was very heavily snowed in, would essentially deliver these mushrooms through this smokestack, hence the chimney. And what would the families do with those mushrooms? They would hang them out to dry in something like a sock, right? Stocking. And then hang them and they dry them out before that actually could consume them. So, and then obviously somewhere along the line, God knows where, Coca-Cola <laughs> managed to take the similar story and the colors of red and white and turn it into this this iconic figure for their own, obviously, marketing purposes, and it's done extremely well for them. So that must have been that must have been enough. like 20th century later on, because there were like um, like the Netherlands has Saint Nick, and you know, there's there's other Correct. you know, yep. in Germany, it's a they have their own sort of Christmas traditions. I, I don't know how involved Santa is in some of those, but obviously, well, was, Saint Saint Nick is Saint yeah. Nick, yeah, yeah. It was Corda Coca Cola. Yeah. The whole the whole way we see Christmas nowadays is is very much. Kind of a bastardized, commercialized version of 
probably what it used to be. Of a shaman delivering mushrooms, yeah, exactly. tripping on reindeer weed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about the application now, the way it's being used now. And I think a great show on Goop Labs, uh, which came out a couple of years ago on Netflix with Gwyneth Paltrow, the use of magic mushrooms, which was really quite interesting and great to watch, actually, to see that come out in such a mainstream fashion, just to open this conversation about it. In that show, they were doing bigger doses, I, I guess, two to five grams, something like that. I'm not too sure. But let's talk about microdosing because we were talking about what's happening now in culture and how it's being potentially the catalyst for incredible creations that are coming about. Microdosing, I think most people listening to this would have heard of it, but what is microdosing and what types of uh, psychedelics that people are using to microdose with? So microdosing is taking, let's say, a low dose of a psychedelic. Some would say a sub-perceptible dose of a psychedelic, usually LSD or psilocybin mushrooms, and taking that sub-perceptible dose two or three times a week for maybe a period of a month or two. And so the idea with microdosing is not so much, I'm just going to take a very low dose once, see what happens, right? But it's much more about just like you would commit to, you know, if you start meditating, you'd meditate every day for 30 days. And then at the end of the 30 days, you'd reflect on, well, what's shifted? What's changed? What have I become more aware of, et cetera, et cetera. And it's similar with microdosing where you're going in, you're going, okay, I'm going to commit to this practice for the next 30 days or 60 days or 90 days or however long, do it two or three times a week and basically utilize it as an opening, sort of a catalyst to shift certain behaviors or certain ways of being. So what's interesting about even at low doses of psychedelics, they increase something called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is a precursor to neuroplasticity. Right. So as we're consistently microdosing, we're increasing BDNF, we're helping the brain to be more malleable, the self, we could even say, to be more malleable, right? And then with that malleability, then it becomes easier to shift out of, let's say, patterns, behaviors, habits that don't really serve us and shift into cultivating ways of being that are much more nourishing. You know, that could be what we eat, it could be how we sleep, it could be what we exercise with, it could be the relationships that we are involved with, it could be um, you know, how much time we spend outside, how much, you know, the work that we do, right? There's a lot that has to, I would say, uh, find coherence to create a harmonized self. And so microdosing can often just help with, I mean, in particular, there are a lot of people who have been on antidepressants for a long time, SSRIs or SNRIs, who are looking to transition into something like microdosing. There are a lot of people who use Adderall and Ritalin, ADHD medication, who are looking to use microdosing. And the core reason for that is because unlike a lot of these classic pharmaceuticals, microdosing is anti-addictive. So there's no withdrawals from it. You know, if you stop taking a certain medication, it's really difficult to do, which is why some people will stay on these for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. The idea with microdosing and with psilocybin, even at higher doses, is how do I cultivate a relationship with this? How do I understand it? How do I use it as a tool, but not necessarily become reliant or dependent on it? It creates the opening. With that opening, I can weave new ways of being in, but I'm not having to do it every day. I can easily have space from it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one orientation is mental health. And then the other orientation that is widely talked about, but probably not as popular, but widely talked about. Maybe 10% of people who work with us are interested in this. Maybe 20%, 10 to 20%. It's the application for flow, creativity, energy, coordination, 
et cetera, et cetera. So in the 60s and 70s, sort of the underground secret of the extreme sport world was taking microdoses of LSD when going paragliding and snowboarding and mountain biking because it would help with making really intuitive split-second decisions. And then in 2015, this guy, Jim Fadiman, who I mentioned earlier, who's a psychologist, was at Stanford in the early 60s doing research on psychedelics and creativity, was one of the sort of OG researchers, one of the only people to do research on psychedelics and creativity. In 2015, he was on the Tim Ferriss podcast, which is listened to by probably half of Silicon Valley, and talked about microdosing. And so at that point, that's when you had a lot of these things that were published about you know, coders and engineers and entrepreneurs who are looking at microdosing to help with performance and creativity and these sorts of things. So when I became interested in it, it was mid-2015 and I was building this first business that I had mentioned earlier. And so I was looking for it to help with, I would say, productivity, easier access to flow. I was writing a lot in the morning. So to help minimize sort of that writing friction, the, the procrastination that often comes up when you sit down and then I also looked to it for social anxiety. You know, I, I largely used alcohol as sort of my inebriant of choice through college. And then at the age of 24, 25, thought, well, what if I can microdose instead and I won't be hungover the next day? I'll have a lot more energy. It's a lot healthier, better for my system. Right? So microdosing has continued to grow. Now, what's interesting about microdosing is comparative to the high doses of psychedelics, Right. High doses of psilocybin, high doses of MDMA, even something like ayahuasca. There's quite a bit more research that exists on high doses than microdosing. But because of the prominence that it's generated in the last, let's say, three to five years, there's now a lot of uh, emerging biotech companies that are starting to carry out clinical trials on microdosing for a lot of things. For, like I mentioned before, depression and addiction. But also there's a company out of the UK that's exploring microdosing for neuroinflammatory conditions like Alzheimer's and dementia. In other words, how could some microdosing something like LSD help with inflammation and lowering inflammation both in the brain but also in the gut? And so that's another interesting element around psychedelic use is how they help tie the brain-gut together, right? So much of what we've learned about even mental health is largely neurobiological, right? It's largely about the brain. And what psychedelics do is they they activate a lot of serotonin. So they're largely serotonergic in terms of the receptor sites that they're plugging into. And 90% of our receptor sites are located in the gut, right? So there's a really strong affinity for psychedelics for those serotonergic receptor sites. Because of that, they're highly anti-inflammatory. And because of that, let's say, effect on the body, the effect on inflammation, one of the sort of prominent hypotheses with microdosing is the reason it can help with the range of sort of conditions that it's helped for is because it helps to reduce chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation is responsible for a lot of disease in the mind and in the body. And so that's an interesting thing that's continuing to be fleshed out and further explored and researched. And like I mentioned earlier, microdosing as a concept, I think is really fascinating. And that's largely because in terms of a populace, most of the world could benefit from psychedelic use. There are exceptions to that. For example, if you have a predisposition to schizophrenia or you know, there's other certain genotypes, about 10% of people are actually unresponsive to psychedelics. They just don't have a response. 
So for 10% of people, it wouldn't do much. But for 90% of the globe, even at microdoses, not necessarily at higher doses, but microdoses, it could be very useful. And sort of at those really high doses, that experience isn't necessarily for everyone. It's a very intense experience. It's an experience that you can't be pushed into or forced into. You really have to want to go into that experience and to prepare to have something like that. In the past, it was either feast or famine, right? So I even talk about ancient Greece and the Eleusinian mysteries. It was you are fully going to into it or you know nothing about it. In the 60s with LSD, you were either taking 500 to 1,000 micrograms of LSD or you were anti-drug completely and totally. And so what microdosing does is it helps to weave a really great bridge, a path between, let's say, those who are psychedelic naive and who are maybe too intimidated to jump in the deep end right away and you know just kill their ego with five grams of mushrooms, but still recognize that I could probably benefit from this. It could help with energy. It could help with low mood. It could help with you know, coordination, it could help with creativity. And so it really starts to then expand the applicabilities of what psychedelics can help with. And so that that in itself is really interesting because what we know historically is these were largely used in high doses for ego dissolution, for this classic mystical experience for religious use, let's say. Right. We talked about the influence for early Christianity and, and the Greeks and you know ayahuasca and shamanism, et cetera, et cetera. That was a lot about religion and God. But what if simply you could just take a small dose once or twice or three times a week? You're not necessarily having that mystical experience, but it's still helping. It's helping with neuroplasticity. It's helping with you know eating healthier. It's helping with getting outside and sleeping better and more exercise, right? Jim Fadiman, who helped to really invent the concept, I call him the godfather of microdosing. He compares microdosing and higher doses as like AM and FM. You're still tuning in to the frequency so to say, you're still tuning in to the radio, but it's just a different reception. It's a different message that you're receiving from that. So the different types of substances that would be classified as microdosing, I'm just curious, we spoke about LSD, psilocybin. What about something like CBD? Because we're talking about anti-inflammatory properties and obviously the endocannabinoid system in the body is largely related to inflammation. Would that be classified as microdosing? Because you're still consuming an element of the cannabis plant, right? So it's interesting because after microdosing became, I would say, popular as a concept, this was 2016, 2017, I started to then, like, microdosing came out of psychedelics specifically, LSD and psilocybin, that that I have no doubt about. But then I started seeing things about, like, microdosing caffeine and microdosing THC and microdosing CBD and, you know, microdosing heroin or microdosing, you know, like some of these other hard drugs as a way to wean off maybe these higher doses, right? So that's definitely become more and more of a thing, microdosing alcohol. But I, I've, I've tried THC a little bit, but most of my experience has been LSD and, and psilocybin. But it's, it's becoming more of a thing. It's like a whole new lens at which to look at how we work with drugs and substances and medicines. Perhaps the distinction then between those substances is that some are opening up your consciousness, so to speak, interconnectedness, feelings of love. Others are actually closing that down, say, alcohol, you know, numbing, activating the reptilian part of the brain as opposed to opening up the higher states of consciousness. Maybe that's a way to distinguish between what is actually microdosing. I mean, everything can be microdosed. It's just that for what purpose, right? And I look at my life, I'm a musician, and sometimes things just don't flow, you know? You sit down and one of the parts that I don't enjoy as much is writing lyrics. The lyrics sometimes come to me really easily and other, t- other times I'll just procrastinate for like three months on one song, like 
oh, I've got to go to the, <laughs> got to finish those damn lyrics, you know. What helps and a song that? will be what helps is just sitting my ass down and doing it, right? It's just getting over the resistance. And, you know, I've spoken a lot on this show and my show about resistance and the role that plays in stifling creativity. But, mm-hmm. you know, I just wonder for someone like myself, I live in Australia, so the, the rules here are strict. You know, you can't just get your hands on or be a part of a trial of LSD or psilocybin. It's, it's you know, substances that are illegal here. And I'm just curious, what other types of things can we use, devices can we use to give us a similar experience, whether that's breath work or meditation or even wearables. You know, I've got just sitting over there, I should have it on. I've got a, a happy device, which was, I don't know if you know the happy device. Yeah. And I recently interviewed Scott Donnell about that. And I've been really impressed with a few of those signals, specifically the CBD signal, I think is really quite interesting. The alert signal, which is nicotine. Actually, no, I think it's caffeine. The focus is nicotine. So there are other ways potentially we can get this. I do wear the Apollo Neuro device every single day, which is essentially, really, it's sound therapy, right? It's really sound therapy. It's one of the few devices I've worn consistently every day for the past year. I really, really like the Apollo Neuro. And more and more, I'm starting to use the Happy. Like I put it under my pillow at night on the sleep setting. So there are things we can do outside of microdosing and psychedelics in parts of the world where it's not accessible, right? What, What would some of those things be that I haven't mentioned? Well, so the sort of interesting, let's say, bifurcation is what are ancient technologies? What are things we've been doing a long, 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 long time? And then what are sort of these emergent, new, amazing things that we do, right? So I um, I think for the ancient stuff, yoga, meditation, breath work, movement, nature, right? Anything that helps, the way that I would look at it is helps us to sort of get back into a parasympathetic mode, a parasympathetic perspective. A place where we go and take a deep breath and go, everything is cool, everything is good, I'm not reactive, I you know, can handle the things that need to be handled, right? Those experiences can bring us back into that parasympathetic state. And those are great integration tools when working with psychedelics, right? So if you have a high-dose psychedelic experience, how do you integrate that perspective and that insight? Oftentimes people will ground it in a practice like meditation or yoga or movement or breath work or even like cold exposure, right? or saunas. And that sort of starts to get into like what are technologies. You'd mentioned too, which the Apollo Neuro I love. It's really something that I actually left it at a friend's place a couple months ago and I just have been too lazy to ask him to ship it back. So I got to like get it because I would use it for meditation in the morning. I'll use it for deep sleep at night. I'll use it when on podcasts, like on the social and outgoing mode because it helps with extroversion. And it's, it's great. It's great. The happy I've tried a little bit. Float tanks are phenomenal. I think going back to what I mentioned about microdosing, right? Like if someone has never worked with psychedelics before, first go float and sit in a float tank, you know, for an hour. And that's going to help you become a little bit more aware of going inwards and, and seeing what, what's on the inside. And then what else? Those, those are sort of the, the probably most prominent ones that I use on a day-to-day basis. Meditation, breathwork, yoga, movement, Apollo. I mean, I use the Aura Ring. That's not really a wearable that puts you into that state, but it's a wearable that helps with track and measuring sleep quality. Did I miss any that you can think of that we haven't <laughs> I don't think so. I think we've covered it. Yeah, it's interesting. I just have a feeling that, you know, the world is in a place right now where there's so much happening where people are starting to feel really pressured. You know, I just I was looking at the riots in France against the vaccine passports, you know, in the streets screaming, Liberté, Liberté, you know, 
whether it's a gender or who knows what's going on globally, the world is changing a lot. And we may not need to go to psychedelics. And certainly you can only really do that if you're in a part of the world where it's accessible and legal. Of course, you can do it illegally, but it's your risk. Certainly not recommending it. But it feels like more than ever, this is the time where we need to be accessing these parts of ourselves that are conducive to increasing our feelings of love and connectedness. I mean, for me, plant medicine, the, I think the biggest, my intention going into plant medicine was to was to operate more from a place of love, more from the heart, to soften some of my harder edges. And I can honestly say that has been overwhelmingly successful. And I am a different person as a result of plant medicine. But I also have done a lot of other work. You know, I've done a lot of meditation, a lot of breath work. So it's not just one thing, but it is a tool. And I'm not saying everyone needs to be doing psychedelics. It's really fascinating stuff. And it's a time in the world right now where I think we do need to access these things. And you can literally just sit down and do some breath work, whether it's 11, 16, 21. I don't know if you've heard of that one, but you literally take in 11 really sharp breaths in and out of the nose. You can sort of pinch your nose up towards your eyebrow like that. So you look like a pig sort of. (laughs) And so it opens up your sinuses so you can breathe more effectively through your nose. And if you take 11, I'll just sort of demonstrate it so the listeners can hear it, but that sort of speed, 11 breaths. On the 11th breath, hold it as long as you can. So don't let it out like you would on Wim Hof. You hold it. And then you do, when you can no longer hold your breath, you let it out and you go for 16 breaths, hold it, let it out, 21 breaths, hold it, let it out. And I can tell you right now, I do this in my sauna almost every time I'm in there and I'm absolutely tripping when I do it. And you could, you could go and take whatever psychedelics, but right there you have access to something. It's so simple. I often have to, before I hold my breath, I put my hands on the seat because I know I could easily pass out. (laughs) So I sort of brace myself, but the colors and it almost feels like I enter into a dream state and we have access to this stuff all the time. And I do encourage people to really play around with these tools we have within ourselves to access these states because the world needs us to operate from a place of love more than ever, I think. And of course, we've gone through dark ages and some pretty horrific times through you know human history but now there is a definite feeling of as you said armageddon type feelings going around apocalyptic so i think this works really important and i really encourage people to to do their research and to dive into it i wanted to shift this conversation a little bit before we finish to a bit of rapid fire and you know whether it's 10 seconds or 10 minutes up to you but i want to ask you what is your definition of success and what do you attribute your success to? Success is the ability to choose based on sort of personal truth and alignment as often as possible, right? It's not 100% necessarily, but as often as possible. And I would attribute most of my success to having the fortune to be raised in a pretty grounded, loving family with two supportive parents who gave me a great foundation. And then just because of that, I would say foundational love, having then the courage to basically really throw myself out there and be adventurous and experimental and, you know, exploratory, those sorts of things. Hmm. Beautiful. What's bringing you the most joy right now? Living in the mountains. I've been in big cities the last 10 years from, you know, Chiang Mai in Thailand to New York City to Miami. And two months ago, I moved to Eden, which is an hour north of Salt Lake City. 
And it's a tiny mountain village of like 800 people. And I've never like lived, lived in the mountains before. And it's just, it's so relaxing. It's so peaceful. There's great access to hiking and mountain biking. And so uh, the peace and quiet out here is something to be really grateful for. And I love, I really, really love. Have you tried much rock climbing? Do you have access to rock climbing around you? A little bit, but I haven't like done it out here. I've done it here and there, but I'm not, I haven't gotten super into it yet. <laughs> Are you into rock climbing? Very recently, my son and I actually got certified oh, to become, oh, nice. so we can literally just go and climb, you know, some pretty complicated things. That's cool. But we're starting pretty simple because, you know, at the very beginning of rock climbing, you just focused on safety. But what I do love about it and why I mention it is that when you're setting up your anchors, you're fully present, focused, because if you're not, you can kill yourself, literally. When you're climbing or when you're belaying someone, you're fully present, you know, and I often just take a moment when you're sort of halfway up a rock and some of these rocks around here, the highest ones we'd probably do would be maybe 50, 60 meters. I don't know how many feet that is. Times it by 3.3. 150 feet. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. And they're already on top of a mountain. So you feel like you're a thousand feet up, you know, but I often pause and I just turn around and, and you're standing on, you know, literally on a, like a 10 cent piece of <laughs> like just the tiniest little thing that you're standing on the amount of presence you have in that moment is really beautiful. I think that's why I'm so drawn to it because, well, because my son and I enjoy doing it together, which is really nice to be in nature with your son. But that level of presence, again, is another way you can get these sorts of experiences away from psychedelics is whether it's rock climbing or for me, surfing is a huge one for me. I live on the beach. The beach is my mountains, you know, for you. And the feeling I get from being in nature is, is I can't equal that. You know, it's extraordinary. So I think Yes, we have access to these sorts of things, but don't forget that we can also just go and spend time in nature, go for a walk, breathe in the mountain air, breathe in the ocean air, and so you can get so much just from that. It's so powerful. Okay. That's so good. Next, next rapid fire. What's one thing you're working on within yourself that you'd like to improve at the moment? How personal do I get? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say one thing is... I'd say over the last six, seven years, I've consistently put myself in a place of overwhelm as a way to challenge and, and help myself grow and you know take on new businesses, adventures, traveling, whatever it is. And what I'm working to settle more and more into is to be okay with doing less and to be a lot more vigilant about how and where my time and energy is going and to stay in a place of rest and relaxation and to know that if I start to push beyond that, that it's totally okay to take time off, to not work for two, three, four days, right? So Balance. just becoming even more sensitive to, to overwhelm because I'm a high energy guy. I take really good care of myself. I have a high, high level of capacity. And I also have a bit of a self-sacrificial sort of masochistic you know, vibe going on. And so I have to find the balance between those two essentially. Like, how do I stay in a good mentally well, present, positive place and continue to show up and for this mission and, you know, what we're creating and building? It's a balance. Totally a balance. Yeah. There's different phases, right? In your life where the push is powerful and it can achieve a lot. I think as well, it can be very supportive when you're younger to be pushing more because you have those resources. But as you get older, balance becomes more and more important. And if you're not careful with that, I think a lot of people listening to this will relate to having pushed too much and now trying to heal from that period. And that was my story. You know, I 
pushed and pushed and pushed and my body broke and I was almost bedridden for like three years. So, you know, this is how important it is to to practice what you just spoke about because it's not fun to be in that place. But but the lessons you get, if you do push yourself there, if you do want to turn things around are extraordinary. And I wouldn't be where I am now. Having achieved what I've achieved, I wouldn't have my wife, my beautiful little baby daughter. I wouldn't have the relationship with my son that I have if I didn't actually reach that point. So there's always a reason for it. But yeah, I, I, I resonate. Let's pretend you have a magic wand and you can put one book in the curriculum in every single high school around the world. What book do you choose? This is a great question. Aldous Huxley, who I surprisingly haven't mentioned yet, who was well known for writing The Doors of Perception about his masculine experiences in the, the early 60s. The last book he ever wrote was a book called Island, which was about this sort of utopian community in Oceania, weaving in a lot of what he had learned as basically, uh, um, Aldous Huxley was an incredible mystic as well as an incredible intellect. And so what sort of utopia would he imagine that was possible? that worked with plant medicine, that was against ecological destruction, that was, you know, they had these birds chirping, something about like, be here now on the island. It's a really interesting, interesting book. And I think that perspective would be really great to weave into high schools and learning. and Open their minds. Open their minds. Um, let's talk about how your day looks. Do you have a morning routine? And if so, how does that look? So morning routine. I get up. I usually will just shower, rinse off, you know, just kind of briefly run through and, and kind of wake up, go upstairs. I'll do like a, a morning cocktail, so to say. I'll do a half lemon, apple cider vinegar, and sea salt with hot water. I'll put a couple ice cubes in. And then as of late, I've been drinking this thing called Magic Mind, which, which is like a matcha shot with bacopa, ashwagandha, and a few other nootropics. At some point, I make a coffee. It might be right when I wake up. It might be an hour or two after I wake up, but I, I'll, I'll have a coffee, usually with a little MCT oil. And then I consistently meditate, probably 15 or 20 minutes a day. And then I consistently journal and I consistently read. So I might journal for, could be 10 to 30 minutes. And then I, depending on the morning, if it's a weekend or weekday, I'll read for anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. It's great to have. I mean, the morning routine is nice. When traveling, I might, shift it up a little bit, but generally I'm always meditating and I'm always doing some sort of journaling. I don't necessarily always read. That's more when I'm home, but it helps create a really good chill base on which to start the rest of the day. And and then usually I'll get into my first creative thing for the day. I won't take calls till at the earliest 10 a.m., ideally not till noon. And usually we'll work on a book or a creative project for you know most of the morning. Yeah, not, not dissimilar to me. What's the one most important thing we can do for our health? I'd say take responsibility, full 100% ownership and responsibility for it and understand that if you're committed to the, let's say, improvement of it and the growth of it, that the information, the technology, the capacity for you to shift it and change it is present now more than it ever has been before, whether that's through diet, sleep, Mm -hmm. exercise, plant medicine, meditation, you know, these other technologies we spoke about in 2021, we have so much agency over our own health and well-being. And as long as you commit 
to the betterment of it, then the right things will show up to help you on that path. And consistency. I find that consistency is like this thing that doesn't get spoken about very much, but consistency is the key to just about everything. You know, know, rewiring. It's it's amazing what it can change. Rewiring, yeah. Changing habits. If you've got a bad habit or a habit you don't like in your life, it's not... I mean, ultimately, it's challenging at the beginning, but once you get through it, you can shift some pretty strong habits. I've done it in my life. I have to shift some things, um, and it's uncomfortable at first, but when you do, you kind of forget you even have the habit. So when it comes down to consistency, what's the one most important thing we can do for our wealth? One, invest in the emerging psychedelic space. As a, as a nice aside to this, I think more seriously, to find contentment in enough and to recognize that wealth True wealth is not abstract. And that as much as we focus on, let's, let's say, financial wealth as a core thing, social wealth, relationship wealth, health, even as, as a type of wealth, right? That type of wealth is much more diverse and for that reason, resilient, uh, has longevity to it. So I think being able to step outside mm-hmm. of a one-dimensional view of wealth is key. And what's the one most important thing we can do for our love and relationships? One thing that I keep coming back to is like vulnerable, vulnerable communication, which is, which is a bit of a, but underneath vulnerable communication, like showing up with always with honesty and integrity and having the capacity to hold tension for difficult conversations without putting up an edge or putting up a sort of sharpness of it. So how can we go in? and have difficult conversations and hold the space for that. And this is this is a challenge. I just struggled with this earlier today with, with someone who I'm really close with and not feel a, a sharpness, an edge, a sort of there as we're having that, that conversation. Uh, like being able to soften even in difficult moments. Mm. And perhaps that can come back to, especially from the masculine perspective, if you're talking about romantic relationships, the coming back to just being a world-class listener, number one, and, and removing our, our own agenda from the conversation, making it less of a conversation, making it more of a listening session designed for the sole purpose of you serving the other person as opposed to trying to get something from that. And I think if you go into these situations with the, I guess, mission of being of service to that person and having no agenda, it's amazing straight away the conversation from the other person can start so much way differently to what you expected because you're energy, everything about you is different. And it's something I've had to learn. I've really had to learn and I forget it all the time. I forgot the other day with my wife and I was like, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, Nick, stop, stop, <laughs> just listen, shut up. Shut, up, shut up, yeah. Um, so I, I get that. Uh, look, I really have enjoyed this conversation. I've loved the, the history side of psychedelics. I just find that so fascinating. And you're obviously doing a lot right now to, in your own way, serve humanity. What's something that myself, Melissa, the listeners could do to serve you today? Have a look at Third Wave and, and have, have a sense of the, the platform and have a sense of, you know, we have some fantastic guides. We have a podcast ourselves. We have a newsletter that we send out every Sunday with, you know, a couple of quotes and a blog and a few other things that are going on. So just, so if this is a conversation that you thought was interesting, that was unique, that, you know, you pick something up, reach out, connect, you know, join us. If this is something that you have questions about, let us know, right? So anything as it relates to like deepening that path and then understanding whether for you or a loved one, I think would be a, a beautiful thing to do. So that would be my, that would be my request. 
Easy peasy. Well, on that note, I will just also mention that you do have a new coaching certification program on the thirdwave.co, which is your website, and also microdosing experience coaches. So there's a couple of programs people can check out there as well. So in the show notes, we'll mention these programs, some discounts that you're going to be offering as well. So definitely go and check out that if you're interested in learning more about psychedelics. Paul, it's been super fascinating having you. Thank you so much for being on the show and thank you for everything you're doing in the world. Thank you so much. Don't forget to head to comparisonitis.com to get your copy of my latest book and all the free goodies that go with it. I cannot wait for you to read it and to hear what you think. What a great chat. I just felt like I was sitting on a couch with a friend, with a cup of tea, just having a chat and learning so much at the same time. Obviously, Paul, he's definitely a super intellectual dude, has a very good grasp of the history of psychedelics, which I think for me was the most interesting part, was learning how this all came about and why these have been suppressed in modern culture and the threat, I guess, that they do pose uh, to certain establishments. So I hope you really enjoyed this conversation and one that's a bit different for this show. But the point of the show is to open you up to, to new things. And of course, we didn't just focus on psychedelics. We spoke a lot about all the things you can be doing in your own life to have similar experiences without having to go into psychedelics. And some of those things that have been hugely beneficial for me I'd say the main one would be breath work if you're really looking for those specific types of feelings. And of course, meditation. There's so much you can do, spending time in nature. We don't need to turn to psychedelics. And of course, some of us can't. It's illegal in many of the countries around the world. But it does point to the importance of us opening up our consciousness, having experiences of love, expansion, oneness, interconnectedness, whatever it is you want to call it. This is the way we want to operate. Right. We want to operate from this place of warmth, of love, of softness. It doesn't mean you have to be, quote, a hippie. You don't have to live a certain lifestyle, right? It's about being a better version of yourself, being a more loving version of yourself, being a more creative version of yourself, being a more accepting version of yourself. And we can do that through many different things. We did mention a lot of things in this episode. Please head to our show notes melissaambrosini.com forward slash 409. And you can get links to all the things we mentioned, the devices we mentioned, the Apollo, the Happy. There's so much. (laughs) There'll be a lot of show notes for this one. So definitely head over there if you want to get those quick links to the things that appeal to you the most from this episode. And if you did enjoy this episode, please make sure you hit the subscribe button. Super important. It does help Melissa's show reach more people because the more people that subscribe, it tells iTunes and Stitcher and all these different platforms, Spotify, that people are loving it and it puts it in front of more people. So please hit that subscribe button and come and check out Melissa's work on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini. And you can also come and check out me at I am Nick Broadhurst on Instagram or head to Spotify, search for Nick Broadhurst and check out my music. I would love to hear your thoughts and connect with you. Now don't forget today to look up, see the beauty around you, see the beauty within you, be gentle with yourself, be love, be kind, be compassionate, be creative, be passionate. And above all, have a beautiful day. I love you heaps.